Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is David. And this is John. And welcome to episode 72 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Daniel Handler who under the pen name Lemony Snicket wrote a series of 13 children's books titled A Series of Unfortunate Events. In 2004, the first three books were adapted into a feature film starring Jim Carrey. The latest Lemony Snicket book, Who Could That Be at This Hour?, is the first in a four-book detective noir series called All the Wrong Questions. Then stick around after the interview as we discuss the state of short horror fiction in my new horror magazine Nightmare with guest geek R.J. Savan, editor and publisher of Creeping Hemlock Press. This show also features a special presentation of Dave's surreal noir story, The Black Bird, which recently appeared on the Lightspeed podcast. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Daniel Handler. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. So last year you wrote a piece called 13 Observations Made by Lemony Snicket While Watching Occupy Wall Street from a Discreet Distance. What motivated yeah. you to write that piece? Um, I guess watching Occupy Wall Street from a Discreet Distance. And also, uh, Occupy Writers, the organization, asked me if I would write a piece, and I said no, because I didn't think I had anything to say. And then I was swimming laps at the place where I swim laps, and I had a rude experience with a clearly successful capitalist, and it ticked me off. And so I thought, I can write something about what's wrong with capitalists being greedy. And it went from there. And uh, so what sort of reaction did you get to that piece? Well, I'm not as plugged into the um, online world of social networking as I might be, so probably most of the reaction I was shielded from. But some people told me they liked it, and uh, Rachel Maddow liked it, I guess, and then I ended up on the Rachel Maddow program, which was curious. So what was it like going on the Rachel Maddow show? It was strange, because I don't think of myself as a political figure, and um, I was worried that I would be called upon to have the kind of fake expertise that many people have on those political shows, where someone who actually doesn't know what they're talking about just has an opinion. And um, I was grateful that we didn't really talk much about politics, so that I didn't have to come up with opinions that I would later have to stand by. Does that make you really nervous going in front of the camera, or have you done enough public events now that it's no big deal? I've done it a lot. I have a, a kind of um, self-hypnosis thing that I go through where I say, no one cares. That's what I tell myself over and over. The first time I was on TV, it was a disaster because I was nervous. And so after that, I just began to say to myself, who cares? No one is watching. It doesn't matter. No one watches TV. <laughs> um, and I convinced myself of that before I go on. So I don't know if you saw this, but there was this recent J.K. Rowling quote where she was asked why she doesn't use more tricks to avoid paying taxes. And she said, quote, I'm indebted to the British welfare state. When my life hit rock bottom, that safety net was there to break the fall. And I cannot help feeling, therefore, that it would have been contemptible to scarp her for the West Indies at the first sniff of a seven-figure royalty check. Uh, as a author yourself, what do you think about that? Uh, I did hear about that, and I, um, I was proud of Ms. Rowling. And I also don't live in the West Indies. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad that neither of us headed for the hills. I um, I didn't have a hard scrabble youth the way she did. And so I have not had to rely on public assistance. But I'm, um, I'm certainly in favor of it and try not to duck paying taxes any more than is necessary. 
Well, I think it's really striking that she's this billion-dollar industry now, and if it weren't for the welfare and arts grants as well, this you know the whole Harry Potter phenomenon, which has done so much for young adult literature, wouldn't have existed at all. Uh, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, I think um, she's a prime example of public assistance being well worth the investment, at least. I mean, the amount of business that she's created in Britain, I'm sure, far outweighs the um, taxes that people paid that went to her. So uh, regarding the Occupy Wall Street movement, uh, what do you think about the current situation with that? And, and where do you think uh, things are headed? Where do I think things are headed with Occupy Wall Street? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I continue to watch from a discreet distance, and I would be loath to speak for a movement of which I'm not officially a part. But um, it does seem like they've had quite a bit of triumph in just having income inequality end up being an issue in this campaign. I mean, the widening gap between rich and poor in America has been going on for a long time, but it's never been discussed as a kind of top-shelf issue that presidential candidates have to deal with. And um, it seems to me like it's the first time that a very successful businessman actually has to account for his success and how he pays for it and what kind of effect it has on other people. I mean, previously, successful businessmen ran for president all the time, and it went without saying that they must be geniuses. And now, actually, it seems, if anything, a bit of baggage for him. So that seems like a triumph of the movement to me. Uh, so speaking of politics, uh, the, the name Lemony Snicket actually came out of politics in a way. Uh, can you tell us about that? <laughs> I don't know if that counts as coming out of politics, but um, uh, I was researching my first novel for adults, which is called The Basic Eight. And The Basic Eight uh, is about a girl who, in high school who kills a boy in high school. And part of it is about the kind of media uproar that follows. And I was interested in cultural commentary, and I began to contact groups that like to appear on TV and state their opinion on things that they don't know about. A lot of those groups are conservative. Um, and I was on the phone with a conservative organization and I wanted the material sent to me. But I had a sudden thought that um, I shouldn't be on their mailing list permanently. And so the woman on the phone asked me my name and I just said the first thing that came to my head, which was Lemony Snicket, which was not a name that I'd ever heard before or ever thought of before. And I thought, to myself during the pause that followed on the phone, I thought, that was a really terrible name to say. Out of all the fake <laughs> names you could have given, it's the least believable one. And then she just said, is that spelled how it sounds? And then I said, yes. And I said, read that back to me because I had no idea how it sounded like it was spelled. And that was the first time the name Lemony Snicket existed. And um, I began to use it for various pseudonymous, prankish things. I was in my early 20s, and friends of mine made me some Lemony Snicket business cards for my birthday, and I used to give them out at bars, and I used to write long, rambling letters to the editors of tiny newspapers and sign them Lemony Snicket. And so then years later, when I started writing for children, it occurred to me that it would be fun to write them and publish them under the name of the narrator rather than the name of the author. And then I had this name lying around gathering dust. So I guess it had its roots in politics slightly. So I don't know if making fun of right-wingers when you're in your early 20s really can count as a political movement. <laughs> <laughs> so years ago, I saw you on tour for a series of unfortunate events. At, oh, yeah? Where? Uh, in New York. Uh, at, um, I think at Union Square, Barnes & Noble. Oh, yeah? And uh, I just it was one of the most entertaining, certainly, certainly the most entertaining book appearance I've ever seen, but even just one of the most entertaining public appearances of any kind I'd ever seen. And you... I don't know if you 
did the same thing, but you sort of said how Lemony Sticken couldn't be there because you'd been bitten in the armpit by a giant bug and you played the accordion. And I was just wondering, yeah. how did that, did you do the same <laughs> thing at every stop? Did that develop over time? Uh, well, much of that I'm still doing. The, the presentation kind of waxes and wanes and evolves and devolves. But definitely, Lemony Snicket is never able to make it to a book appearance. And so I am his stuttering, suspicious stand-in. And, I mean, that just came from when the first book was being published. Under the name of Lemony Snicket, we had these mysterious photographs of Lemony Snicket. And the publisher said, what are you going to do when we send you to a bookstore? And they say, Lemony Snicket is here, and you're not a mysterious person who doesn't show his face. And I said, I don't know. And they said, well, we think you should figure that out. <laughs> so they mm -hmm. sent me to go see some other authors present. And I watched another children's author present, and I thought she was terrible. And she told me later that what she liked to do was to dispel the mystery behind writing. And I thought, why would you want to dispel the mystery behind writing? It's, I mean, the mystery of writing is kind of where do these stories come from and these mysterious ideas, but the actual writing is someone sitting at a desk writing, which <laughs> is very boring. And so I thought, what can I do to in increase the mystery of writing rather than decrease it? And the answer proved to be what has become the kind of stuttering performance art thing. But I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> so, like, you did this thing where you, 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 you said you have the bug that bit Lemony Snick and you took out, like, a box, and then there was a little box and a little box, and then you're running around shelling this, like, plastic beetle or something. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and the kids loved it, but I was just wondering, have you ever had kids just, like, start crying or freaking out or anything when you run around showing them this big plastic bug? I guess sometimes, yeah. It's, um, I've learned that the really good bookstore for a crowded children's event will have a plan for when a child vomits. <laughs> I'm sure some people have cried, but most people enjoy it. But some kids got so excited they vomit. And, um... Mm -hmm. You know, you're at a good bookstore where they say, so here's our plan if somebody vomits and here's what we're going to do and here's how it's all going to be fine because there's nothing worse than a child vomiting and nobody has the slightest idea what to do. Uh, so the first time you stepped in front of a crowd like that and were planning to tell them that Lemony Sticken couldn't be there, but you would play the accordion for them instead and stuff, were you? did you have trepidation about how that would go over? Uh, did it go over well from the start? Um, I didn't really have any trepidation because I was certain the whole thing would be a disaster. <laughs> I mean, I agreed to write books about terrible things that were happening to children over and over again and then publish them under a ridiculous name. I thought the whole thing was certainly going to be a commercial disaster. And I mean, you asked me what the first time I was uh, performed in front of a crowd like that. But the first, you know, 100 times that I performed it, it wasn't a crowd at all. <laughs> the first Lemony Snicket event that I ever did had two people. It was at a huge chain bookstore in Michigan, and they'd set up a million folding chairs in this room that was like the size of a football field. And there were two people, two adults, sitting in the back. And so I did my whole shtick, feeling like a moron, a sad moron. And then the two people came up to me and they said, we're actually from the other bookstore. And we hate your book. <laughs> and we just were so curious who in the world could be behind them. And I thought, yes, this is exactly what I thought would happen. <laughs> Everyone would be horrified. It was kind of satisfying. Well, that's uh, that might be worse than George R. R. Martin's story about Clifford the Big Red Dog drawing more people than him when he did a book signing. 
Except for the big red dog, I bet still has a pretty enormous following. We'll have to check I wonder how that would that. go with Clifford the Big Red Dog versus George R. R. Martin now. Yeah, right. Have a cage match. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so the series of Unfortunate Events books were uh, actually re-released last year with some bonus materials. Uh, could you tell us a bit about the what those bonus materials were? Uh, that wasn't last year. That was a little while ago. But we put a few volumes in paperback and we put a kind of penny dreadful magazine in the back which had a serialized story and a some comics by Michael Kupperman and some other things like that. The books hadn't been in paperback, really. They'd only been in those hardcover gothic novel editions. And so I thought, well, if they looked like they would be in paperback, they'd probably look like Penny Dreadfuls. They'd look like something full of exclamation points and lurid stories. And I just experienced the work of Michael Kupperman, who I think is amazing. For a while, I had a comic strip about the adventures of Snake and Bacon. Um, a snake and a slice of bacon who try to solve crimes. <laughs> um, so uh, he did a, a serial story for that. That was fun. So who's better at solving crimes, the snake or the piece of bacon? Um, well, the snake only says over and over again, and the bacon says things like crumble me in a salad. <laughs> um, and so neither of them really do a very good job of solving crimes. It's an almost completely deflated detective story from the start, which is why I liked it. Um, well, actually, I mean, speaking of sort of uh, crime stories, uh, could you just tell us about your new series, uh, All the Wrong Questions? Uh, yeah, All the Wrong Questions is about Lemony Snicket's childhood and apprenticeship in a secret organization. And a series of unfortunate events was um, kind of a take on a gothic novel, and All the Wrong Questions is kind of a take on a noir novel. So he's in a, um, a fading industrial town and he's solving a very complicated murder involving a stolen mysterious statue. Uh, there's kind of a femme fatale and the figure of Ellington Faint, who's a young girl who is either plotting with Mr. Snicket or plotting against him, depending on uh, the way it goes. And um, it, it's a four-volume series and the first volume is being released I was going to say tomorrow, but I realized we're taping this, so <laughs> <laughs> it's out now in stores, I mean. Yeah, so what were, I mean, you said it's sort of uh, in the tradition of noir fiction. I mean, what are some of your major influences when it comes to noir fiction? Um, well, Raymond Chandler is definitely the king for me. I started reading him when I was young, and then I returned to him recently as I started thinking about this idea, and I just think he has a beautiful way of... Um, making mysteries alluring and having all the kind of philosophical and moral digressions that Snicket books have. So it seemed like a good fit. Um, Charles Williford is another really great one. Dashiell Hammett. Well, I mean, the Dashiell Hammett certainly seems to be an influence in terms of the missing statue. Was that something? Sure. Well, I mean, I think out of all those kinds of mysteries, the most interesting MacGuffin is the Maltese Falcon. And so there's a black statue in this that kind of tips its hat to that. Uh, so were there any references in the book that uh, were just really amusing to you or just, like, really obscure? Um, well, I try to bury as many references as I can. Some are only references to things I I think I could find. So I like it to have kind of endless layers of reference. And um, one of the things I like about going on tour and meeting my readers is I meet readers who have found things I wanted them to find, found things I didn't want them to find, and then found things I didn't put there. <laughs> Uh, so the book's illustrated by an artist known as Seth. Uh, how did he get involved with the project? 
I stalked him, basically, and asked him to do it. I've admired his work forever. He's a graphic novelist who I'm sure will be familiar to many geeks in our audience. And while I was working on the first volume in All the Wrong Questions, I saw a drawing he did on the cover of Poetry Magazine that was a kind of a lonely seaside town that looked exactly like the lonely seaside town that I was writing about. So he was coming to WonderCon in San Francisco, where I live. And I'd never been to uh, WonderCon, so I thought, I'll just go there and he'll be signing books and maybe the line won't be so long that I could actually talk to him. And then, I don't know why I thought WonderCon would be different than it was. People had told me that it was kind of a smaller, brainier Comic-Con. So I guess I assumed that it would be dedicated more to the kind of arty end of graphic novels rather than comics. And I had such a funny thing when I walked in there, I was immediately surrounded by people in stormtrooper costumes. And I thought, oh, <laughs> this is funny. And then I went and found Seth, who likes to dress in old 30s suits. So he was sitting lonely, utterly ignored while people were, you know, meeting people in Spider-Man costumes and um, going to reenactments of certain battles in the Star Wars milieu. And so... I said hello and introduced myself and said that I admired his work and asked him if he would want to uh, work on something with me. And um, and then we kept in touch and he foolishly said yes. So when you go to an event like that, do you uh, do people recognize you or uh, I mean, do not do they not know what you look like well enough since you, you sort of hide your face on the books and whatnot? Um, I guess I'm recognized sometimes. I mean, it's hard. In San Francisco, I think I'm recognized as much for having grown up there as for anything I've done. So it's a great check on your ego because you'll be sitting in a restaurant and then someone will say, aren't you Daniel Handler? And you'll say, yeah. So then they'll say, yeah, my sister dumped you in eighth grade. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, I didn't go to WonderCon as any kind of presenter or performer or anything. I just went to see Seth. And my wife was on a panel about her own work, and so I don't, yeah, I don't think I was recognized that day. Also, if you're surrounded by stormtroopers, no one's looking at you. Hmm. Uh, so in the book, the characters start to get into an argument about whether books like Lord of the Rings are good or not, and one character starts complaining that the wizards in these kinds of stories never seem to be very helpful. Uh, which side would you take in that argument? Well, far be it for me to argue against a wizard. That just seems foolhardy. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what a wizard will do when he becomes irritated. <laughs> but, yeah, I think of all literary genres, probably the fantasy one was the one that was least alluring to me when I was young. I think I have a lot more respect for it now than I did when I was young. But when I was young, I always thought, why doesn't the wizard just fix stuff? The wizard is always explaining I have unlimited power, but it's you, actually, you young person who has to go and, you know, climb this mountain or battle this thing. And I always thought, really, the wizard can't help you just a little bit. <laughs> and so what I mean, I understand, you... I understand narratively that you don't want the wizard to say, there's someone threatening our kingdom, but luckily it's not a problem because I'm a very powerful wizard. <laughs> but um, from the point of view of the reader, I always thought, what are you hanging around for? So, I mean, so what do you think about the genre sort of generally now? I mean, fantasy and science fiction. I mean, do you have any particular stories that you're fans of or, or authors? Or I mean, I tend to go into the past with literary genres. So I'm tending with, so with science fiction and, and fantasy, I tend to read more from authors who are dead. But um, I remain a big William Gibson fan. I think he's always interesting. And I like a lot of 
writing that has a touch of that, but maybe doesn't fit neatly into the genre. Like Rachel Ingalls is one of my favorite writers, and she's she's American actually, but she's lived in Britain forever. And she her stories tend to have strange things happening in them, but you don't find them in the sci-fi section of the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Kelly Link is like that. She's another mm-hmm. great American writer. I mean, it's always that weird thing with science fiction is that many of the good authors get promoted by marketing departments or literary critics out of science fiction into literary fiction. And then everyone says, oh, science fiction doesn't have any good writers because they're (laughs) good writers. (laughs) You know, if you're a good enough writer, they decide you're not science fiction. And then they say science fiction doesn't have any good writers. It's like an endlessly circular argument. Yeah, are you familiar with the the term slipstream fiction? Um, It sort of sounds like what you're talking about, uh, you know, sort of literary type of fiction that has some sort of strange aspects to it, maybe not quite fully science fiction or fantasy, but has something unusual or strange happening in it. Yeah, we actually talked about that in our our, our Juno Diaz episode and, and, you know, talked about the same thing you're talking about with the, you know, where writers sort of get promoted out of the genre and, and thus sort of this self-fulfilling process. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think it happens in every genre. You know, you, if you decide Margaret Atwood isn't a sci-fi author and you decide that Paul Oster isn't a mystery author, you can't then complain that those genres don't have good enough writers in them. And then, of course, there's just kind of the ghetto that so many writers who like to write about unearthly things end up in, but they're not taken seriously are noticed by a certain segment of the audience that would love them because they're kind of put in that category. Uh, so do you think you might ever try to write uh, science fiction or fantasy yourself? I guess, I mean, I guess whatever I wrote probably would be more of the slipstream category that you're talking about. I mean, certainly I've written a bunch of books where things that can't possibly happen are happening. So, mm-hmm. I mean, as the author of a book in which a baby climbs up an elevator shaft using only her teeth, <laughs> I feel I can't say, no, I would never write a fantasy book because it's <laughs> fairly outlandish. But, um, yeah, I, I don't have any idea for a book now that takes place on another planet, for instance. But mm-hmm. um, that's probably because the books I write take place in an Earth that is so unrecognizable that the idea of calling it another planet just hasn't occurred to me. Uh, yeah, so I've heard some writers say that once they become parents, they have to stop writing stories about children in danger because it just becomes too nerve-wracking. Um, as a parent who writes a lot about children in danger, uh, what do you think about that? Um, well, for me, having a baby was a tremendous boon in writing about terrible things happening to children because, I mean, he's not a baby now. He's uh, nine years old. But, um, I mean, when you're a new parent, you spend the majority of your time brainstorming about dangerous things that can happen to your child. You know, you learn to enter a room with a crawling baby, looking for things that are on the ground, looking where the electrical outlets are, you know, looking for a bunch of things that never occur to you before you have a child. And I think for someone who was then in the later stages of a series of unfortunate events, and I just, I needed to brainstorm all the time about terrible things that could happen to children. And um, having a child kind of kept me in that zone. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think, I certainly don't think I've become gentler on children since I had one. My son is terrified of my own books, though. He refuses Mm -hmm. to read them. So maybe that tells you something. Uh, So you wrote eight drafts of the film adaptation of a series of unfortunate events, none of which were used. Based on those sorts of experiences, do you have any advice you'd pass along to other writers? (laughs) Um... Do I have any advice? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't go so far to say that the drafts weren't used. I mean, the drafting of a screenplay is kind of an evolving process. So I was fired, and then someone came in to 
rewrite my script a few more times. And um, so there's some lines that remain. But um, what can I say about that? No, I mean, it was a long, dramatic experience. And the only thing I think is that some writers who are hired to adapt their own work kind of assume it won't be a challenge, and I think it always is. So I think everyone who works for Hollywood has that experience sometime, which is that they're being driven totally to the edge by a film that's in development, and it's stressful. But film's really expensive, so if you're in charge of making a $200 million film, you're going to be nervous. And if you're nervous, then you're going to want to make sure that the script can't go wrong, and you're going to be a nervous person bossing around a screenwriter, and you're probably going to be unhappy. <laughs> uh, so are there going to be any more movies based on the series i mean they hired me to write a few drafts of the second one and they say that they continue to work on it i never know whether to believe them but i it seems there's always somebody interested the ball gets passed to someone who's interested so we'll see so i don't know if you saw this new york times review but they wrote lemony snicket has burned us before like the x-files lost and countless other conspiracy driven sagas snicket's 13 volumes of a series of unfortunate events left fans with far more questions than answers uh what do you think about that i mean do, do you think that you burned people <laughs> um burned gosh i don't know i mean i'm just interested in stories that ask more questions than they answer them. And I understand that some people feel the other way and that's fine. I never thought that I was writing a book that everybody would love. Um, I tend to hate books that everybody loves. So I'm sorry someone feels burned, but I also feel like, I don't know if you've ever actually been burned, for instance, like if you, if your skin has come into contact with something really, really hot, I think that's a way worse feeling than experiencing a piece of culture that you find unsatisfying. Well, you're sort of so. dam damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? Because if you leave any mysteries, people want to know the solutions to the mysteries, but then no solution to a mystery is ever as intriguing as the mystery itself. So people are going to be dissatisfied yeah. either way. Well, I think it goes back to the conversation about do you want to dispel the mystery of writing or do you want to keep the mystery alive? And because mysteries are more intriguing than solutions. And so... This new series is all about asking the wrong questions, and some of those questions lead to more questions, and some of them get answered, and some of them are never answered. And um, I can understand people who get frustrated by that, but oh well. I mean, what did you think of the endings of, say, Lost and X-Files, and do you think that you're doing something different with the way the, with the mysteries in your books? I honestly don't remember the en ending of the X-Files, because <laughs> um, I kind of ended up falling off that boat. But in the gothic novels that I read that fueled the series of unfortunate events, there's always kind of lost threads and dark shadows that never get explained. And, um, and certainly now in reading noir to prepare for all the wrong questions, there's also those kind of mysteries that don't quite fit together. And I think that's way more alluring. There's a famous story when Howard Hawks was making um, The Big Sleep that they suddenly realized there was some part of the plot that they didn't understand. They said, how could he have known about this and gone over there in the middle of the night? And so they called Raymond Chandler and said, we don't understand why this would happen. And Raymond Chandler said, how would I know? <laughs> Which I really liked. It's kind of a sad commentary on, on sort of book uh, reviewing culture that, you know, in the New York Times, they're reviewing a book. They have to compare the ending that they're complaining about to TV shows that they couldn't come up with any actual book endings to compare it to. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I am... Um... 
I guess it shows more respect for TV. <laughs> um, and I think, um, you know, I welcome literature being brought into the mainstream culture and not kind of ghettoized as a hopelessly arty art form that we can only compare with other classics of literature. Um, I, you know, I think it's nice that people can think across different media and see things that have in common. But I admit, having a book compared to the last season of Lost is not maybe my favorite thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, that's a, that was a low blow. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, I try not to. I mean, I, um, I'm not one of those writers who refuses to read his reviews or anything, but mm-hmm. I'm also not a writer who obsesses over it. And um, I'm not much of a self-Googler. You're always going to get stung. You can always find someone who's hating on you for some reason. And um, I don't know, life's too short. So you recently wrote an introduction for Chris Van Allsburg's uh, new book, uh, The Chronicles of Harris Burdick. Uh, how'd you get involved with that project? It, it's kind of an embarrassing story. But when I was young, I saw The Mysteries of Harris Burdick, which is, um, I guess I should explain for those who are unfamiliar, is um, a children's book by Chris Van Allsburg in which he says, these are some illustrations that a mysterious man brought. They're just full-page illustrations with a caption, and there's a matching story, but the man never reappeared, and so we don't know what the stories are. So they're just these very striking images and strange captions, and you're forced to kind of invent the story in your head. And I saw it when I was a child, and I never forgot it, but I also never saw it again, and I never really examined my memory of it the way you do when you were a child. And so when the Lemony Snicket series was starting, I was talking about to the publisher about how important mysteries are. And I said, when I was a child, I saw this book that was nothing of illustrations and the stories were missing and it was so intriguing. And, you know, I always wondered what happened to that author. And I said, that's Chris Van Aldberg. He's actually one of the most famous children's authors working today. And that is a book that's like meant to fool eight-year-olds and you're almost 30. Get a grip on yourself. <laughs> But I always thought it was testament to the power of that book that even though I hadn't really thought about it concretely for a long time, that the mystery had lurked in my mind. So a couple of years ago, the uh, Chris Van Allsburg's publisher had an idea of asking a bunch of writers to write the stories that might go with these images. And they contacted me and I said, I wasn't interested in writing a story that went with one of the images, but I would be interested in writing a new introduction because it was the introduction of the original book all about this mysterious author that intrigued me so much when I was young. So then I got to write another, a new introduction explaining the existence of all these other stories, which was fun to do. All right, cool. So one piece of advice that you give to new writers is to get a job where you can steal paper, except now yeah. that everything's going digital, is there something else that new writers should be stealing instead? <laughs> um, I guess if I start encouraging people to steal their computers from work, that seems <laughs> quite irresponsible. I don't know. I mean, I'm still a um, paper person. I print all my work out when I'm reading it, and I kind of recommend that writers do that. So I still think you should steal stuff from work. But um, I mean, I think when you're a writer, the important thing is to find the time to write because you probably need to write one book and throw it away. If only one book, you need to get a lot of bad writing out of the way before you can get the good writing done. And so you just need a job where there's time to do that. So my best job that I had before I was published was when I was an assistant. I was kind of an executive assistant to a man who was dying in the hospital. So I had absolutely nothing to do but sit in an office. And occasionally the phone would ring from 
increasingly distant business acquaintances, and I would have to explain to them in muted tones that he was sick and not likely to come back to the office at all. But the rest of the time, I worked on my novel. And I actually think the kind of aura of doom that hung over it was very helpful to me as a beginning novelist as well. So I guess I could suggest try to work for somebody who's dying. You get a lot of time. All right, great. So we're, uh, we're all out of time here. I guess just finally, uh, are there any other new or upcoming projects you'd like to mention? Well, no, it's just this book. I'm on tour for this book now, so I'm excited about who could that be at this hour and um, going around and asking children mysterious questions and hopefully not leaving them burned. <laughs> all right, great. So Daniel Handler, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you very much for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Daniel Handler for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for our panel today, we'll be discussing the state of short horror fiction and John's new horror magazine, Nightmare, with guest geek RJ Savan, editor at Creeping Hemlock Press and Print is Dead. So RJ, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And so I just want to kind of, just my, my perception of just sort of the general state of horror is kind of that Horror was really big in the 80s. This is books I'm talking about. Horror was really big in the 80s with authors like Stephen King and Clive Barker and Dean Koontz coming to prominence and then kind of receded in popularity. And in recent years came back really big with the whole zombie phenomenon. And you also have all these traditional horror monsters like vampires and werewolves are very popular, but they're more in a paranormal romance category. Yes, that's, that's basically what happened. That's kind of the broad strokes of, of what we had take place coming out of the 80s. Um, you had such a boom in the 80s where everyone was jumping on the bandwagon and yeah, horror imprints just exploded, popped up from every publisher. And the, the market really couldn't sustain that for very long. Quality went down. All the covers were the same and it was more or less kind of a homogenized mess. And it, it, it had no, no place to go, but to pop and, and that happened and then and then slowly kind of the remnants crawled up and produced what we think of today as the horror small press it was the last vestige of the, the horror faithful held on and kept it alive but you're right it's kind of been some would say watered down by paranormal romance and i guess things like twilight but it's just the nature of anything it's cyclical it's always going to be around but it's always going to be changed in shape and you'll always have the old guard complaining, hey, that's not how it's supposed to be. But it's just the nature of things. And how about the zombie thing? I mean, do you agree that there was a big resurgence in horror, but it was mostly just zombies? Or Well, yeah, you've got that. I mean, that 2003 is kind of the ground zero for the zombie resurgence. And that year alone, you had the Walking Dead issue one debut and Zombie Survival Guide by Max Brooks. And also The Rising by Brian Keane. So among horror fans, there was this desire for more zombie fiction, which I guess that ball started rolling in about 89 or 88 with Book of the Dead by John Skip and Craig Spector. It was a fantastic anthology, which showed readers and writers, hey, we can do something special with this whole zombie thing. But it took a good year, a good 10 years, a good decade to saturate, to, to reach a point where the, the mainstream was ready for more zombies. It's an interesting subgenre because I, I almost, I've reached a point where I consider it a separate thing from horror because your diehard zombie fan is not necessarily your diehard horror fan. Your diehard horror fan knows the zombie genre, but your zombie fan 
in some cases is just obsessed with the, the zombie story and in particular the post-apocalyptic survival attributes of the zombie story so it's really the zombie genre i think of as being an offshoot of kind of what we saw john Wyndham create in the 50s and 60s with books like day of the triffids and and i guess even books like alas babylon they are at heart survival stories and the zombies just happen to be the catalyst we've reached a point and I, and I talk about this somewhat in the, the first editorial for nightmare magazine the, the october issue uh as far as the public's concerned horror is a cinematic thing there's no crossover between the horror movie fan and and the horror fiction fan and again the horror fiction fan knows his horror film but the your average moviegoer who thinks Paranormal Activity 4 is, is kind of the epitome of horror, they're, they're not reading any of this stuff. They're not reading Nightmare Magazine. I, I wish they would. Maybe we can convince them to. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, well, what would you say, like, the real horror fans have been reading in the last 10 years? Well, again, that takes us back to the, the small press where you had just this explosion. You had, you had names like Thomas Ligotti and Gary Brownback and Tom Piccarilli. Ed Lee, if you like your stuff really nasty, Jack Ketchum. The small press kept the genre alive for a decade with those guys. Well, I mean, I actually, I wanted to talk specifically about short fiction. Those, that, those guys you mentioned, um, I mean, Lugati, they're fairly heavily into the short fiction stuff. Definitely. Lugati, primarily, I don't think there's a novel. If there is, I missed it. Um, but he, he's pretty much mastered the, the truly weird, short form in a way that we haven't seen since Lovecraft, I think. His stuff is genuinely uncanny and disturbing. Something I've noticed with horror writers is that there are all these different markets, none of which has an overwhelming market share. And right. so it's very difficult to look at someone's bibliography. And there's there's just all these different magazines I'm not familiar with. And to know how selective any of these magazines are or how prominent this author is. And I mean, that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to launch Nightmare is because like I kind of felt like there wasn't that definitive horror magazine out there. I mean, you know, you have something like Cemetery Dance and you have Chizine. But uh, other than that, it's like, I mean, there's a lot of sort of smaller magazines out there. And, and like you say, you know, there's a lot of them are just things that you only sort of kind of heard of in someone's bibliography. But, you, you know, you never encounter it or you never hear people talking about it or anything like that. Um, you know, not to put down any of those other markets, uh, but you know, it, it's, I felt like there was space in the horror field to have that sort of one, you know, market that can rise up above the others. Uh, and you know, based on the success of Lightspeed and stuff, it's like I felt like, you know, I'd be in a good position to, to try to take that title, you know, and then, you know, and also to, to sort of not only get horror readers, but also get science fiction fantasy readers or mainstream readers, you know, interested in reading horror because, uh, a lot of people like, think of horror as only movies and not really think of it as, as a literary genre so much. And, uh, but I mean, I think my approach that I've taken with, with my anthologies and with Lightspeed and whatnot, I, I think sort of lends itself towards bringing in people who aren't as familiar with the, you know, with all the tropes and, uh, and everything like they don't, you don't have to have a master's degree in horror to read nightmare. You know what I mean? So. Going back to what I said about the, the small press keeping horror fiction alive, it has, but, it's also kind of kept it in a box. You've got X amount of people who shell out the big bucks for these fancy limited editions and what have you. But what it kind of boils down to is a few thousand people 
who are still into this. And that's great because it keeps the small press alive, but that does not translate into mainstream success. 2,000, 5,000, even 5,000 people are not going to really successfully float a project. It's not New York numbers. So what horror kind of needs again is something that's going to bring in more readers. What seems to do that now for people is kind of niche subgenre stuff. Again, the paranormal romance, the teen horror, the zombie survival stuff. General horror still seems to be out in the cold. Well, why don't you tell us about your, some of your experiences with Creeping Hemlock Press? I mean, how did you start that and what kind of books do you do and what sort of success have you had with them? We've dabbled in just about everything. We launched with still our our favorite book, Corpse Blossoms. It's an anthology. We were finalists for the Stoker that year. Um, it's a collection of what we call quiet horror, not over the top, not doused in blood. So we started with the anthology, and that did very well. It continues to do very well for us. And, and you know, we've branched out into we've done some crime, we've done some science fiction. We we reprinted a an early nightstand porn novel from Lawrence Block, and then we moved into the the uh, zombie thing. You know, riding that wave, we'd been into the whole zombie scene from the very beginning, but we decided pretty late in the game to launch the imprint because I, I was I'm friends with. Romero and he provided us an endorsement and so you know you get an endorsement from Romero for a zombie imprint you run with it so yeah we've been all over the map right now our emphasis is on the zombie line and nightmare magazine and um, we're going to bring out Corpse Blossoms in paperback for its 10th anniversary because until now it's only been available as a as a limited edition hardback I mean you mentioned Corpse Blossom you called it sort of this quiet horror which I guess would be in contrast to say the splatterpunk yeah, kind of stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Do you do any kind of splatterpunk? Yeah, I mean, Corpse Blossoms was our vision, my wife and I, and it came from a very particular time in our life, and it reflects that, but it's very low-key. The zombie line, on the other hand, our, our imprint, Print is Dead, actually contains two of the most extreme and violent horror novels to come around in the past decade or so, Pray to Stay Dead by Mason James Cole, and World in Red by John Garumba, both newcomers. And both of these books are endurance tests. They're well-written. Some have said better written than they need to be, given the nature of them, but they're endurance tests. Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, speaking of the sort of quiet horror, um, I mean, that's basically mostly the focus of what Nightmare will be. You know, that's sort of my preference for horror. I mean, sort of on the literary side. Uh, you know, Charles Grant had a, a series of anthologies uh, called Shadows. Um, I think there was about 10 of those. And that's sort of one of my favorite horror series of anthologies. And and so that's sort of uh, what I'm trying to emulate, at least in terms of the type of story that he would publish. Yeah, well, that's definitely where my heart is. I like the crazy stuff, too. But it's, you know, you have to balance it. What I think happened, again, this all, I keep coming back to the impact of cinema on horror fiction. I don't think we have the splatterpunk movement without the movies. The movies throughout the 70s, you know, starting with like Last House on the Left and Texas Chainsaw and going through the 80s, the emphasis became about the bloodletting and the gore. And so naturally that spun into, I think it was Dave Scow, and I may be wrong, he may have labeled it splatterpunk. 
Um, but it came out of Los Angeles. You know, you got Skip Inspector and Scott, and they're out there in Hollywood trying to make it happen, but also writing their fiction. So, yeah, the Splatterpunk movement was very cinematic. I mean, the prose, the writing was, was cinematic. It was all about imagery. On the flip side, with your Charlie Grant type quiet horror. It is a very different type of story for sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is something that I've considered with Nightmare. It's like, well, how do I even um, consider including both types? Because they are so drastically different. And I mean, I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've found anything that, that is toward that splatter end of the spectrum. Although I do have at least one story coming up. That's a, you know, sort of uh, a little bit more extreme than, um, than what most of the stories I'm going to publish are. Um, there's a story called Chop Shop by JB Park that, uh, is definitely toward that extreme end of the spectrum, but, um, and it'll probably disturb some people and turn some people off. But, you know, I mean, I think it really does a good job of evoking that feeling of horror that, uh, like, I mean, you know, I've, I've said before, I, uh, like how Guts by Chuck Palahniuk is one of my favorite all time horror stories, uh, largely because it is so evocative. I mean, I literally like have a physical reaction when I'm reading that story, even though I've already read it and I know what's going to happen. And earlier I'd mentioned Pray to Stay Dead and, and World in Red. We get complaints from readers who bought either of those novels. I mean, angry. Hey, I had to put this down because it was upsetting me. <laughs> and my, my question to you as a horror reader is, isn't that what you want? Shouldn't horror occasionally slap you in the face and make you uncomfortable? I think if you're just reading one story after another in your comfort zone and you're, oh, this is great. And it's not challenging you, even if it's just something as simple as a visceral challenge. Oh, that was gross. I think it's a good thing. So I look forward to occasionally just a really nasty but well-crafted story popping up in Nightmare and, and challenging the reader. Because I think the horror reader or just the reader in general should always be challenged. And there, and there are certain stories that are going to come along that it'll just be like, okay, well, we're going to lose a few subscribers for this one probably but you know it, it's it's probably worth it because uh you know it's just like you have to push the envelope and uh and you know there's just some stories that are going to be so divisive that people are going to love it or they're going to hate it and you have to take those risks to find those george romero talks about how horror is about knocking over the apple cart but what bothers him about most modern horror is at the end the apple cart gets put up and all the apples get put back in place <laughs> And he's like, what's the point of that? You knock that fucking cart over and you leave it knocked over. Cool. All right. So why don't you guys talk a little bit about this collaboration you're doing between Creeping Hemlock and Nightmare? I mean, how did that uh, get started and how's it going to work? We met JJ at Zombie Fest out at the Monroeville Mall in Pittsburgh, outside of Pittsburgh, where they filmed the original Dawn of the Dead. We were both hawking our, our zombie wares. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, uh, the, I mean, at Zombie Fest, there was like some sort of zombie ball or whatever. And uh, I was there with my friend Rob and, um, and you know, we were just sort of we didn't really know anybody. And I think we met Julia first. And then, um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, we just uh, really hit it off and, and found out to be, uh, you know, that we had a lot of similar tastes in horror and, and, and everything. And uh, and we had stayed in touch afterward. And, and I had always thought like, oh, well, it would be cool if I could do something with those guys. You know, you, I mean, RJ and Julia, his, his wife, Julia, who's his partner, Creeping Hemlock. And uh, so when I when I came up with the idea to do Nightmare, it just seemed like the perfect opportunity because um, I just recently bought Lightspeed. And so I was I, I then had become the publisher of Lightspeed. And I 
I wanted to do the horror magazine, but I didn't really want to launch a, a second magazine all on my own. And, and so I, I, went, I, I thought I should get a partner and, and it just seemed like Creeping Hemlock would be a good fit. Because also, I mean, like RJ knows way more about horror than I do. So, um, I mean, as, as much as I'm comfortable, you know, editing a horror magazine, it's just nice to have somebody who, you know, is much more steeped in the, in the genre than I am um, that I can, you know, turn to and, and, you know, rely on to correct me if I <laughs> if I'm heading down the wrong path or something. I mean, so so Creeping Hemlock Press is sort of the quote-unquote publisher, or I mean, what exactly is your role uh, in the magazine? I guess co-publish. We're, we're, we're kind of publishing together. Would, would you say that's accurate, JJ? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're basically, uh, it's a collaborative uh, publishing effort between, you know, Creeping Hemlock and me. Basically, uh, they're handling the financial side of things, and I'm basically putting together most of the stuff with the magazine. and. Um, Julia is handling the art direction and, you know, RJ has a column in the magazine um, that'll be in, um, you know, sort of every issue. We're, we'll, we'll have some guest contributors to that column, but uh, but basically that's RJ's space to talk about the horror field. I guess what we bring is, is you know, a decade of having made connections throughout the industry. I can go to someone and say, hey, do you want to advertise? And, you know, I've already I have a pre-established connection with, you know, guys like Cemetery Dance and so forth. And, and actually, uh, I mean, it's also just handy because, like, RJ knows a lot of people in the horror field that I don't necessarily know. Like, I, I know them by their work, but I don't know them personally, whereas maybe he's already met them and, and interacted, interacted with them or even published them. And, yeah, I've got, uh, I've got dirt on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think a lot of I mean, it's sort of notoriously difficult to make money providing content online. And I think a lot of people probably wonder just what is the profit model for you know, launching your own magazine like this. Uh, do you want to just talk about that a little bit? Like, where do you, how do you pay your the contributors? Uh, well, I mean, doing the the Kickstarter uh, really helped, obviously, because I mean, it allowed us to pre-sell, um, and that was the model that we we sort of did the Kickstarter on is basically a pre-order model. We we started off with a a, a good chunk of money that we would have had to just come up with ourselves uh, otherwise. But, I mean, the way the magazine works now that we're actually launched, I mean, you know, we publish all of the fiction online for free. And so you can read it just for free. But we also publish ebook editions that you can either buy or subscribe to. And the ebook editions are sort of, you know, nicely formatted to be read on your e-reader or whatever. And it's also convenient. So it's just, you know, emailed to you every month or whatever. And um, but also... uh the content that's posted on the website is sort of serialized throughout the month. So when the October issue publishes, you know, uh, in the first week of the month, the first story publishes the second week, the second story publishes and so on. Uh, but if you buy the ebook issue, you just get the whole issue all at once. So like, you know, if you're really eager to read new story by Sarah Langan or whatever, you know, you could have bought it right on October 1st rather than waiting until, you know, the last week of October. But I mean, you know, that's basically the the model is, uh, you know, give it away for free to, you know, get people talking about it and to um, to get new readers. But uh, but then also sell the ebook issues and subscriptions. So for those who want to support the magazine or if they just prefer to have the convenience of, of the ebook editions, um, you can read the magazine either way. It's a nice way of getting people to support a, a free magazine when they, you know, might typically like they might only want to read it online for free. But then, you know. They want it to keep going, so they'll buy a subscription even if they don't necessarily care about having the ebook editions. And um, right. that way, uh, you know, you're not like just asking for donations and whatnot. You mentioned Sarah Langan's story, Afterlife. That is a, a, an excellent example of what I think of when I think of quiet horror. It's mm-hmm. 
one of my favorite shorts I've read in a long time, and it just epitomizes what you can do with quiet horror. The strength of that story for me lies in the the fact that these people are haunted with or without ghosts. The mother's a Mm -hmm. hoarder, and she's completely warped and twisted her daughter's mind and just basically destroyed this her daughter. Her daughter's a full-grown adult now, and she's completely incapable of functioning in the world. And you remove the ghost from this story, you still have two completely dysfunctional, haunted people. And the ghosts, whether they're real or not, just act as a catalyst to push them over the edge. I mean, these are people who you could see on an episode of Hoarders or Cops or something. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's very evocative, very realistic, and and ultimately very disturbing. And actually, you know, speaking of uh, whether the ghosts are real or not, that's one of the things that I really like. I really like about having a horror magazine is that it gives me the freedom to have stories like that where the sort of supernatural element or whatever doesn't necessarily have to be real. Whereas in a science fiction or fantasy magazine, like, you know, a lot of readers will actually feel cheated if they read a story where it's like sort of um, ambiguous whether or not the fantastical element is is real or, or imagined in the mind of the of the narrator or protagonist or whatever. Right. And I hadn't thought of that comparison between, say, horror and science fiction. But yeah, if at the end of, a, of an SF story, you learn that the hyperdrive was all in the narrator's head, <laughs> you, you've got a problem. Okay, well, I mean, Archie, you mentioned that, you're, that you'll be writing editorials in each issue. Do you have any idea what kind of topics you think you might be talking about? Yeah, um, in the October issue, I talked about the H word as kind of a stigma. A lot of people who read horror say, no, 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 I don't read horror. Horror is that slasher stuff. I, I, I like F. Paul Wilson and Stephen King, and I tell them, well, no, you read horror. Oh, no, I don't. So that's the topic of the first column. The November issue tackles the ghost story and, and the two elements that I feel a ghost story needs in order to function. The follow-up is going to be about the, the comeuppance story, the kind of EC Comics creep show trope of the nasty antagonist or even protagonist who gets his or her just desserts in the end and whether or not that's a tired trope and how we can make it work and how it doesn't work and basically trying to spark dialogue. I hope these conversations spill over into the comment section and online because I think this genre is worth talking about. It's not just worth experiencing and it's worth participating in. There's something important in horror fiction at its best. And I think we should talk about that. That first column actually did end up generating a bit of discussion already. So, um, yeah, I mean, if anybody listening to this has a lot of burning thoughts on the H word, as it were, uh, you know, feel free to pop over there and, uh, and put your two cents in. Uh, so, so what sort of feedback did you get on it? Yeah, mostly <laughs> folks are just like, well, I hadn't thought of that. You know, you, the, the gist of the article is that movies have tainted the reading public's perception of horror. I mean, it's, it's funny you mentioned the movies tainting people's perception of horror, because, I mean, that's certainly something in fantasy and science fiction we experience as well. And I often wonder if the reason that fantasy and science fiction lost status in the 20th century, when it was, you know, had been sort of the heart of literature up till then, is that that's when film comes in. And so for the first time, people associate fantasy and science fiction with cheesy special effects, yes. uh, which they never did before. But, I mean, you mentioned that you know, that you have this contingent of people who just think that Paranormal Activity 4 is the be-all and all of horror. I mean, right. could you talk about sort of what deficiencies you see in the films and what people would be getting out of the, the fiction that they're not getting in the films? 
Okay. Well, stepping back for one second, I mean, what we're talking about here is not just symptomatic of horror. It's just entertainment in general. The visual-based entertainment media is going to beat print at every turn. It doesn't matter which genre we're talking about. It's the ultimate populist entertainment. You sit down in front of it and you drool and you watch it play out on the screen. Harlan Ellison or Ray Bradbury could rail against this a lot more eloquently than I can. Remember, Ellison talked about the glass teat. Watching a film for two hours is not much of an investment. Reading a Ramsey Campbell novel is. So you just have a certain segment of the population who is not going to pick up horror fiction. As for the movies, what's wrong with the movies? Take, you know, I've mentioned it before, but I mean, it's in theaters now, Paranormal Activity 4. It's become an annual tradition. And before it, the soft films were kind of the October tradition. I don't think of these as actual movies. To me, they're not films. They're not even successful narratives. They're the cinematic equivalent of the, of the Halloween haunt. It's, it's kind of an attraction. You go every year and you sit down and you have well-placed scares, which are basically just sound effects or jump scares. So it's pretty much a haunted house, a fun house in the theater. Well, John, I mean, you had this big six, like, is it fair to say the living dead is your most successful anthology to date? Oh, oh yeah, by far. I've, I've only done a couple of horror anthologies. And I mean, I mean, some people would consider Wastelands a horror anthology as well. So Wastelands is a post-apocalyptic anthology. And, and, you know, I mean, so a lot of people consider that horror. Um, and I mean, to be fair, I, uh, I actually myself, I probably find post-apocalyptic narratives uh, much more scary than I do most uh, traditional horror just because it, because of the sort of viability of, of an apocalypse, you know, versus, you know, the viability of zombies or, um, you know, vampires or whatever attacking you, uh, like supernatural monsters. That actually raises the issue of supernatural horror versus what was psychological horror, do they call it? I mean, like Silence <laughs> of the Lambs. Do you, right. yeah. um, do you think Nightmare will have stuff like that in it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, uh, I mean, I'm definitely open to psychological horror, straight psychological horror. Um, it'll probably be a, a tougher sell for me just because it's a little harder to pull off a good psychological horror in short story versus novel length. But I'm certainly open to it. And I'd love for somebody to send me the best damn psychological horror story ever and then and, and just make me shut up about that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I'm definitely open to that because, yeah, I mean, something like Silence of the Lambs is to me much scarier than something like The Exorcist. And we could go on a whole separate tangent talking about Christian-based uh, horror and 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 how <laughs> and how it it is or is not scarier depending on whether or not you believe in uh, higher power or whatever. But just I mean, any anything that actually is based a hundred percent reality or or is at least uh, scientifically plausible or, or possible, like uh, I find that kind of stuff much more scary. Um, although it is often not traditionally thought of as horror. In his introduction to American fantasy tales, Peter Straub paints this picture that the American horror short story grows out of colonial times where we were here and we were living on the edge of this great unknown forest. And it's just filled with all these horrors. And we're out of that forest now. The horrors of the old world are really behind us. So I actually have it takes a lot for a supernatural horror story to hook me because I reject the superstitions of old, so you're really not going to frighten me with a story of a vampire or a werewolf or a specter or whatever. So for that reason, those stories have to function on a metaphorical level. I mean, I've mentioned before the 
the overlook is only as frightening as the ghosts in Jack Torrance's mind. His alcoholism is is the ghost that he brings to that haunted hotel. And it's a ghost that so many of us have to deal with, addiction, fear, you name it. Supernatural fiction for me has to work on a metaphorical level, whereas the horror that's found in, in science fiction doesn't. If you're afraid of the vampire, the vampire has to be a metaphor. If you're afraid of nanotechnology, nanotechnology does not have to be the metaphor. Technology is kind of the great unknown force that we're moving toward. So what I would like to see, and we're actually developing an anthology along these lines, is horror that embraces the future and the unknown technological force and rejects the old the old world fears. Because the old world fears really only work if they're metaphorical. And I don't think we need them anymore. People who cling to them, cling to them out of tradition. But I would like to see them completely re-envisioned for the future. Right. And, and that point about supernatural horror fears being metaphorical is a point that Stephen King made very explicitly, I remember, in his study of the horror field, Dance Macabre. Correct. And something that always really struck me is that I read an author who said that he read Stephen King's novel Pet Cemetery in college and didn't think it was scary at all. And then he went back and read it 20 years later when he was a father and found it absolutely terrifying. And that the fear that under the real world fear that underlies that novel is the fear that you'll lose your children or that you won't be able to protect your children or that terrible things will happen to them. This is true. I, I read the book prior to becoming a father and, and I, I now have an eight year old and I'm absolutely terrified to reread it because I'm, you know, it's not the Wendigo running around in the forest or the little zombie kid coming back that frightens you. It's the thought that I could lose my child. And so that is where supernatural horror exceed, uh, succeeds when it forces us to essentially face our mortality. I mean, when you boil it down to its essence, that's why we read this stuff to get the visceral brush against death, to face it in a safe way. Well, and you're doing a podcast for Nightmare as well, right? You want to talk about that? Uh, sure. Uh, as with Lightspeed, uh, the Nightmare podcast is produced by Stefan Rudnicki, who uh, was an Audi and uh, Grammy Award-winning um, audiobook producer and narrator. We're going to do half of our stories every month. Or it will be uh, part of the podcast, um, just like at Lightspeed. And and so that's, you know, so two stories every month. Yeah, I mean, uh, Stefan narrates some of them, but um, he also is the producer and everything. So he uh, he also brings in um, sort of other audiobook professionals. And uh, was sort of when he he's always producing um, audiobook like book length uh, works as well. And so, you know, when he has somebody come in to read a novel, um, he'll, you know, try to get them to, you know, read uh, a story for Nightmare or a story for Lightspeed or whatever. And so. You know, if you prefer to listen to horror rather than read it, I mean, you do have the option of listening to the podcast and, and it is free. So uh, for what it's worth, uh, I, I'll say that, uh, uh, you know, so for the first issue, uh, Jonathan Mayberry's story, Property Condemned, was our first podcast. And then um, we also did Genevieve Valentine's story, Good Fences. Uh, but then also um, be, uh, as sort of a promotional thing, we uh, we had our friends over at the uh, Tales to Terrify podcast produce Laird Barron's story, Frontier Death Song. So for the first issue, you can, you can actually listen to the to the first three stories we published. You know, so Tales to Terrify is another podcast as well. Like if you know if you do like horror fiction and you like to listen to it, um, you know, you can uh, also check them out as well. It's a sort of an offshoot of the Starship Sofa podcast, but you know, sort of a horror version. Uh, and then and then of course also you know there's uh, the Pseudopod podcast, which is part of the Escape Pod you know Escape Artists uh, family of podcasts. 
And, uh, you know, it's been around for a long time. It's probably the, you know, the most widely listened to uh, horror podcast or horror short fiction podcast anyway. Just finally, is there anything you guys want to mention that you're working on? Anything else people should check out? We have Nightmare Magazine issue two uh, tomorrow, November 1st, with a, a brand new story from Ramsey Campbell, a reprint from Poppy Z. Bright, and also stories by, help me out, JJ. Uh, also stories by Joe Haldeman and Desirina Boscovich. And Creeping Hemlock Press has, um, in January, we're launching Wave 2 of Print is Dead, which again is our zombie imprint. We have a novella from Tom Piccarelli called Pale Preachers and a novel from Tom Piccarelli titled Vespers, which kind of does what Pick does best, which is play up the noir crime angles. And, and in this case, he's kind of mashed up noir and crime with zombies. Tom Piccarelli is one of our favorite authors here at Creeping Hemlock. And he's going through some rough stuff right now. He has brain cancer. So if you want to check that out, there are some ways that we can help our favorite Creeping Hemlock author. He's a great guy. Go ahead and Google that. Um, beyond that, we recently released Carnage Road by Greg Lamberson, which is a really clever zombie satire, kind of a take on on 70s motorcycle road pictures. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So RJ, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. I had a great time. And thanks again to Daniel Handler for being our guest today. And since it's Halloween, we thought it would be fun to wrap up today's show with a little spooky story for you guys. So we're going to have a performance of my short story, The Blackbird, which combines Dashiell Hammett's detective novel, The Maltese Falcon, with Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven. This is a story I wrote back in college, and it's the story that got me included in Mike Resnick's 2003 anthology, New Voices in Science Fiction, which collected fiction by 20 of the most promising new fantasy and science fiction writers. It's a very short story, only about 13 minutes long, so I hope you'll give it a try. But if you're not interested, you can stop listening now. There won't be any more show after the story. This recording was produced by Stefan Rudnicki for Lightspeed Magazine and performed by Artie Johnson. If you enjoy it, you should definitely check out some of the other stories that Stefan has produced for the Lightspeed and Nightmare podcasts. Alright, so let's get to our story. The Blackbird by David Barr Kirtley The Blackbird on the mantelpiece spoke. It said, Nevermore. Spade looked up from cleaning his pistol. The bird a black-lacquered falcon statuette sat motionless. Spade placed the pistol down on his desk, pushed back the brim of his hat, and approached the bird. You talk. The bird watched him with two small black eyes. Yes, it answered. Its voice was eerily familiar somehow. How? Spade demanded. You're just a statue. The bird's lacquered beak moved when it talked, as if the statue were alive. Sounds like a mystery to me. Spade lit a cigarette. Well, I'm good with mysteries. I just solved one. You didn't solve squat, the bird sneered. Spade was perplexed. He had solved the case. The black bird was a fake, a decoy. They'd scraped away a bit of its lacquered exterior, and instead of priceless jewels... They'd found nothing but worthless lead. He said suspiciously, What do you mean? You never did find the real falcon, the bird said. Don't you wonder where it is? Spade shrugged. The Russian has it, probably. 
Let Gutman and the others go after it if they want. They'll never find it. Wrong, said the bird. The Russian doesn't have it. In fact, it's right around here somewhere. Spade studied the bird. Finally, he said, All right, I'm listening. Good, said the bird. Listen closely, because this is a real mystery, not like your usual work, which is always about who killed who or who's banging whose wife. That's not a mystery, Spade. That's hardly even a puzzle. Spade frowned. Real mysteries, said the bird, like, why do we exist? What's the nature of truth? Is there a higher power? They don't have solutions. That's what makes them mysteries. Spade broke in. So, where's the real falcon? The bird sighed. It's so obvious, I'd think you would have figured it out by now. You're the detective, after all. Tell me, didn't you ever read the purloined letter? The best place to hide something is in plain sight where no one will think to look for it. Spade walked across the room and lifted the blackbird off the mantelpiece. It chuckled as he turned it all around. He walked over to his desk and set the bird down, then flicked open his pocket knife and began scraping off more of the black lacquer. Underneath, of course, was nothing but lead. You're getting warmer, said the bird. Spade opened a drawer and took out an iron file. He began scraping away at the bird's leaden neck. Oh, even warmer now. Spade scraped deeper and deeper. Then he took a deep breath and blew, sending filings flying away into the smoky air. Beneath the lacquer and lead, the bird was made of gold and jewels, which sparkled even in the dim light of Spade's office. Congratulations, cried the bird. You solved the mystery. You're rich. Case closed. Something's not right here, Spade said. He took up his pocket knife again and used it to poke the largest jewel. The knife's tip sank a few centimeters in, as if the jewel were made of chocolate. Oh, boy, said the bird. Now you've done it. The plot thickens. Carefully, Spade started scraping away at the jewel. I should warn you, the bird intoned ominously, that if you keep digging into this matter, you may not like what you find. Spade ignored him. Of course, the bird added, people in mysteries always say that, don't they? And does it ever happen? No way. The hero goes right ahead, catches the killer, and gets the girl. He gets his picture in the paper and a handshake from the mayor. So go ahead, Spade. Don't listen to me. Keep digging. Everything will probably turn out all right in the end. The faux jewels fell away like dry scabs. Beneath lay cogs, flashing lights, an intricate network of tiny machines. What's this? Spade said. Microcircuitry, the bird explained. That's what allows me to talk. There's no such thing. Well, said the bird, look who knows so much. Just because you've never seen microcircuitry, you presume it can't possibly exist. Read Hume sometime, why don't you? Spade poked at the microcircuitry with his knife. What is all this? Computers, said the bird. Machines. That's what it's all about, Spade. Everything's a machine in one way or another. Your body, the universe. One day, you'll probably be replaced by a machine. Who knows? I don't think so. Sound improbable, said the bird. 
Why don't you try scraping away at your own outer layer? You might be surprised at what you find. Absently, Spade ran a fingernail down the skin of his forearm. Leave well enough alone, said the bird, just this once. I think there's something more, Spade said, a deeper layer. He began to scrape away at the microcircuitry. Circuits popped and sparked and fell away. Motors broke and oozed hydraulic fluid. Lights went dark. You're out of your league, Spade, said the bird. Why don't you just go back to murder, adultery, that sort of thing? That's more up your alley. I've broken the machines, Spade observed. And you're still talking. The bird nodded reluctantly. Perhaps it isn't the microcircuitry after all. Beneath the circuitry was a pink, porous surface. Looks like skin, Spade said. Maybe, said the bird. Spade filed away at the falcon's beak, which cracked off and fell to the floor. He filed away its eyes, its throat. He scraped away tiny circuits and fake jewels, exposing more and more of the flesh. It's a face, he said. Oh, it gets better, said the bird. It's my face, Spade said finally. A living, miniature version of his own face stared back at him from the opening in the blackbird's head. So you see, said the bird, this is how I can talk. I'm actually alive, after all. Spade realized with a start why the bird's voice sounded so familiar. It was his own. Why do you look like me? Because our perceptions of things, mysteries, for example, are filtered through our own consciousness. If you keep digging for truth, eventually all you find is yourself. There must be something deeper, Spade insisted. I wouldn't count on it. Spade raised his knife. The bird eyed it nervously. Uh, Spade, what are you doing? Sam Spade had never failed to solve a mystery, and he didn't intend to start now. I want the truth. With an unsteady hand, he began to scrape away at the tiny face. Clear amber fluid oozed out. He scratched at the falcon's throat. That, that's the juggler vein, the bird whispered. You might want to be careful around that. Will it kill you? No. Spade sliced it, and blood billowed forth, splattering across the desk. Spade gasped. Blood? Blood, the bird confirmed. That's as deep as you're going to get. Spade set down the knife. That's the answer to your mystery? Blood? I never said there was an answer. Quite the opposite, in fact. Spade scowled. That's not a mystery. Au contraire, said the bird. That is a true mystery. Real quests for the truth usually end in fits of self-destruction and bitter disappointment. I'm not finished yet. Oh, no? What's left to do? You've already... It paused. Uh-oh, Spade, it added. Looks like you're bleeding. What? Spade pressed his fingers to his neck, and his hand came away wet and sticky. He leapt to his feet, ran across the room, and looked in the mirror. I told you it wouldn't kill me, said the bird. Beyond that, who's to say? Blood oozed from a gory section of Spade's cheek, and a deep gash ran across his throat. He seized a cloth to stanch the flow of blood from his neck, but the fabric soaked through instantly. He spun around and stared at the bird. I said you might not like what you found, the bird said almost apologetically, but you didn't listen. 
Spade sank to his knees, his blood dripping wide, wet spots across the carpet. No girl for you, the bird scolded. No handshake from the mayor. It hopped from the desk and strode across the carpet toward him. I told you you were out of your league. The bird shook its head ruefully. But would you listen? Spade collapsed, his head striking the floor. Will Sam Spade live to solve another mystery? The bird asked. Spade watched as it loomed closer, its bleeding face a mirror of his own. Finally the bird stood before him, casting a long shadow over him. Nevermore, it answered, chuckling. <laughs> Nevermore. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.